0: All right, just a review of announcements before we get started. We need to be in prayer for Camp Arete. Uh Dates are July 16th to 23rd, so that's coming up in less than two weeks. We need to be in prayer for the staff, pray for the safety of staff and kids, pray for their ability to think clearly, doctrinally as they communicate to the kids, pray for safety of their transportation, pray that their uh, finances will all be uh, taken care of. Uh, In addition to that, we need to pray for a couple of things that are coming up in terms of our calendar just to put it out there so there's some long-term thought in this as I'm uh, putting together sort of an Israel 101 conference to take place September 8th through 11th. That's Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday morning, three sessions, and uh, Sunday night. Sunday night speaker will be uh, Yoram Ettinger, who's spoken before, and he's uh, very well respected. He was also one of our speakers at the uh, Yad Vashem event. Uh, Albert, you know, you've met him before. And uh, also, uh, we're going to have a talk on BDS. If you don't know what BDS is, you need to be there. Uh, Also, we're going to talk about uh, have some other speakers related to other contemporary issues, and it's really geared towards reaching the Christian community. So it's not just West Houston Bible Church. It's reaching out into the Christian community to help people understand why Israel's important. What's going on in Israel, in the Middle East, the rise and development of the new anti-Semitism, which is often cloaked as simply anti-Zionism, how this is being played out on college and university campuses, uh, what, what the Bible teaches about why Christians should support Israel. Some of this is pretty well understood by many of you, but uh, there's all, a lot of new information things are always uh, changing we always need to be reminded of these things so um, I think it's going to be a, a, a very important uh, time that, that we have so that's on the calendar and then sometime in uh, mid-October we need to be thinking about uh, the men's camp out since we had the church picnic in the spring we need to think about the men's camp out um, Orlando's place should be dried out uh, by then I was there the other day that those, we've all been out there, and the water level from the creek behind his house was up within 12 inches of his deck behind his house, so that was like Lake Silas back there, Uh, all of that was just, uh, it was, he said it was 600 feet across the water to the other side, so that was, uh, that was remarkable, anyway, so just have those in, in mind. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great joy to study your word, to be challenged, to think more deeply and precisely about what your scripture says, to be reminded about its truthfulness, its accuracy, to have our f- strength, our faith strengthened and edified. Father, as we continue our study, help us to understand uh, the significance in terms of what we study, because these questions and issues come up in many different conversations in unexpected ways, whether it involves students on a high school or college, university campus, or whether it involves Conversations with uh, a neighbor or an acquaintance or friend uh, these kinds of things come up all the time and we are mandated in scripture to always be ready to give an answer to defend our position to make it clear and um, uh, to those who ask for for the hope that is within us and Father we pray that you would uh, help us to think clearly about your word it's not just a matter of academic exercise it's a matter of of everything in your word uh, has to impact our lives our thinking and our uh, relationship with you and secondarily our relationship with others and we pray this in christ's name amen we've been in a study for the last couple of weeks because we're in first samuel and we've gotten to first samuel 15 and the Uh, command by God to Saul to completely annihilate the uh, Amalekites. And that is the kind of command that is, that just doesn't sit well with modern man. This is often interpreted by those who uh, Whose starting point is hostility to the Word of God? That this just shows that God is the God of the Old Testament is an we, evil, wicked, arbitrary uh, God, and He's no different from the evil, wicked gods or the Canaanites or the or any of the others. And that happens because their starting point is wrong, and because their starting point is wrong, they're going to end up at the wrong place. And we have to understand what the Bible teaches about why God did this and what its nature was. Because as we have been so sadly reminded in recent uh, weeks and the last year with these jihadi attacks in Paris and in Brussels and in Southern California and in Florida, that, that the idea that jihad is a holy war uh, and, and the idea that what the Bible has is equivalent to that through using that term holy war is just a, a, a it is disrespectful to Scripture and really betrays uh, something that is wrong about, uh, about Scripture and a misunderstanding of what's going on and why. And this is um, why we're looking at this, continuing to look at what this this whole concept of so-called biblical holy war And so I began uh, working through this. We've been looking at, wait a minute, that says Jericho and I. I think that due to human error on my part, I opened the wrong keynote. That was last week, so we don't want to get mired into last week's lesson. So let's start over. There we go so it's tonight we didn't get to i last time so we're looking at holy war i that's how it should be pronounced many of us have heard people pronounce it ai in in english which is not accurate the best way and i still catch myself many times mispronouncing it i and consecration just a quick review since last week Um, I was uh, on vacation. Jim Myers was here. Uh, Let me just review a few of the points that we covered when talking about this concept of so-called holy war. The question was, is there such a thing as biblical holy war? Now, I've grown up hearing that term. A lot of people have used that term, but as I got into the text, Of Scripture, looking at the terminology this last time, the question occurred to me: Is this really a a valid translation of the Hebrew term that is used? There's not a, you know, the word for holy is from the verb kadosh or the adjective kadosh. That's not used in this term. The word for war is a completely a different word. So those words are not used in the text of Scripture. The word that is used in Scripture is this word. Sometimes, as we'll see in J- Joshua seven one, it's translated "accursed things." It's a difficult word to bring over into English. It is the word "harem," and it has the idea of banning something or prohibiting something from some, some someone from. Uh, benefiting from something, devoting it to the Lord, or destroying it. And, and actually, none of these terms really captures the meaning. I've used a couple of quotes from the uh, technical Hebrew dictionaries, the theological wordbook of the Old Testament, captures the basic idea in the first sentence. The basic meaning is the exclusion of the object for, from the use or abuse of man and its irrevocable surrender to God. In other words, when these cities or peoples or nations within Canaan were put under the ban, were put under the harem, then they are surrendered to God. And in the war, Israel was used as an instrument of God's justice, his judgment upon these sinful people who God had graciously allowed to continue to exist for uh, four centuries. And, Now they are to be judged and destroyed, but not in a way that brings any value or benefit to the instrument of Israel being used in that judgment. Israel is not supposed to prosper from this. They're not going to gain wealth from it. They are not going to benefit. They're not to take plunder. Uh, It's not going to benefit them in terms of salvation or in terms of spirituality. The New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis defines it as Consecration for service to God is dealt with in uh, Leviticus 27:28 where its persons or things are under the ban, Joshua 6:18, Micah 4:13 objects are put under the ban. Something is devoted uh, to the Lord. Uh, <clears throat> these things are to be used for God's service, not for personal uh, benefit. A third point I had was that, as such, the core idea of consecrating something to God informs us that the doctrinal application is going to relate to sanctification. The lessons that we're going to learn here are going to have to do with setting something apart to God. In that sense, we see a close connection to the idea of holiness because that's the idea of holiness being set apart to the service of God. But the point I keep wanting to hammer home so you remember this, is unlike islamic jihad or the holy war of the middle ages the christian crusades fighting in harem in the old testament did nothing towards salvation or the spiritual growth and it was not to enrich the victor i added that today it is all of this is set apart for god so this is talked about in terms of this period of war between Israel as she destroyed the inhabitants of the land that God uh, that God gave her, and that these Canaanite groups, starting in the middle of this point, were guilty of the grossest uh, religious sins of all time, infant sacrifice, sexual orgies, temple prostitution. Now, I skipped the next four points, just as a reminder, point nine. During this limited period of history, from the conquest which began in 1406 BC through the last period of Saul's kingship. That's a limited period of time. The rules of engagement are spelled out in Deuteronomy 20 verses 16 to 18. They were applied to the Canaanites, but the rules of engagement would differ for those who were non-Canaanites. So God is specifically targeting that population because of their behavior, because of their sin. It's not racial. It is spiritual. And <clears throat> the examples that we're going to look at, this is point 13, had to do with the battles of Jericho and Ai, as described in chapter 6 and 7 of uh, of the book of Joshua or actually goes through through chapter 8. Now, one of the things I spent time on last week was looking at the archaeology. Now, archaeology is important. Archaeology provides us with evidence, it provides us with validation, verification and, <clears throat> and and a look into the culture and the by studying the remains that have been found of a particular civilization. Archaeology is not going to prove or disprove the Bible. But archaeology is an important discipline because on the one hand, there are people who make claims that archaeology does not substantiate the Bible. Now, you can't let things like that go, can you? Now, I know there's probably somebody listening to me who says, well, why do we listen to the idiots and the heretics? How should they define the battle? Because we've always In the history of Christianity, we've always let the heretics define the battle. In the early church, for example, there was no thought given to the preservation and collection. Well, the preservation, I misspoke there. there. There's no real thought given to the collection of a canon until you get into about 150 A.D. Now, the different books of the New Testament were being copied and were being passed around and were being used. But around 150 A.D., you had a heretic by the name of Marcion come along, and he's deeply and profoundly anti-Semitic. He hates the Jewish people. And so he comes along and he looks at these books from the apostles and he says, well, Matthew can't be from God because that's so pro-Israel. Mark can't be either. Luke probably, but we're only going to take about two-thirds of of the gospel of Luke. And then we're going to throw out the gospel of John. And he only accepted about 10 of Paul's epistles, got rid of all the Jewish-oriented epistles, Hebrews, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, James, got rid of those. Uh, so he defines a very narrow can- a canon based on his anti-Semitic presuppositions. Well, immediately when he says this is the canon, what has to happen? People who understand the truth have to say, no, it's not, and this is why you're wrong. And this is what the text says. And so what happens with archaeology is the same kind of thing. You and, and other areas, science, these areas are part of human intellectual activity and we have to understand truth from error, and we have to be able to answer those that are the opponents of Christianity who seek to use these things in an attempt to destroy the, the confidence that Christians have, have in Scripture. Now, granted, Christians shouldn't let their confidence uh, be shaken. It should be in the Word. But that's only a belief by people who don't understand the sin nature. That's only a belief by people who are living in an idealistic world. When you send off your children and your grandchildren to state college or university, the first thing their, their liberal arts professors are going to try to do in the first semester is destroy their faith in evangelical Christianity. And uh, and they have to have answers. They have to know what's going on. They have to understand uh, what the text says. And unfortunately, too many schools today do not provide those kinds of answers. So we're looking at these uh, two situations here, the the battles for Jericho and the battle for Ai, uh, in terms of how it relates to understanding harem but we also get the opportunity to look at this in terms of its archaeology and its historicity because that's important the word of god is not a philosophy book the word of god is not teaching us a, a it's not directly teaching us a philosophy of life it's indirect when you look at philosophies you look at platonism aristotelianism you look at neoplatonism you look at cartesianism uh, all of the various uh, philosophical frameworks, uh, what you see is 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 this attempt to to uh, build a philosophy of life that 's totally grounded on human uh, ration, rationalism or empiricism. When you look at other world religions, they are not grounded in space time history they 're grounded in human Ideas, human rational, rationalisms, and empiricism—things of that nature—they're grounded in mysticism, and um, uh, this is—you know—mysticism also comes across into Christianity in a very insidious way when it says, "Well, you don't need to worry or teach about Christian evidences because God's just going to make it clear to you that it's true." Well, then let's see what Luke says in Acts or what Jesus said, or excuse me, Luke said in Acts 1, where it said Jesus appeared to his disciples and gave them many infallible proofs. Jesus gave the disciples evidences for the truth of his physical bodily resurrection, that this just wasn't some sort of apparition and other things of that nature. So we have to understand that one of the unique things about biblical Christianity and and Judeo-Christian revelation is that the doctrine of Scripture is integrally and intimately connected to historical geographical realities, so that if the history and the geography are not true, the doctrine isn't true either. Walt Kaiser, who was the president of Gordon-Conwell Seminary for a number of years and a well-known evangelical scholar made the comment that uh, the Bible's theological truth claims are suspended on a cable of historical factuality. In other words, if the history in the Bible is wrong, the doctrine is wrong. You can't separate them. Um, In other words, for valid theological truth to be derived from the Bible, it's essential that the Bible's historical content is also true. Otherwise, it just becomes it. It just becomes another philosophy of life, like everything else. And and that's one of the interesting things we've. Um, I'll mention Joel Kramer a little later on, who's a an archaeologist over in um, uh, over in Israel right now. But Joel, before he went over there, was a photojournalist, and he was a lay pastor in Salt Lake City, and he cranked out a couple of excellent videos dealing with Mormonism, one of which was on the Bible and Mormonism. And even before he went to Israel, he's been living in Israel nine years now, but even before he went to Israel... He made the point in these videos that not a single geographical location in the Book of Mormon can be found anywhere on the planet. There are no archaeological remains. There, You can't find any of the people groups. You can't find any of those things. It's total mythology. And uh, and yet the Bible, you can go to Shkim, you can go to... Um, uh, Samaria. You can go to Shiloh. You can go to Jerusalem. You can go to Bethlehem. You can go to Nazareth. You can go to all these different places that are mentioned in the Bible because it's a it's a historical, geographically based faith. It is a another way to put that. It's a space-time faith. It is related to reality. And so when we look at uh, some of these issues that I'm going to bring up, It just helps us to have, A, to have confidence that the Bible is true, and B, it it also helps us to understand that there are biblical answers. Now, I know that you're not going to go out and be able to uh, fully uh, give the answer for some of these technical things. I've spent years studying these things, but what I learned when I was in high school listening to some people talking about creation and evolution is that uh, as they answered very technical scientific arguments, that when I heard people try to counter that later on, I would say, I can't articulate the answer, but I've heard someone articulate the answer. And so I wasn't sucked in to a false idea, because I had heard a clear presentation of the truth. So that's part of the reason that that I do this. Another reason I do this is because nobody else does it. Uh, where, where are you going to find? If the role of the local church is to equip people to do the work of the ministry and to understand the word of God and to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in them, uh, if the pastor isn't teaching it, who is? I remember about uh, 12 years ago or 11 years ago when I was traveling with uh, Tommy Ice and uh, uh, Tim LaHaye, and we were uh, we were in um, uh, we were over in Greece. And uh, when we were over in Greece, uh, Tommy was listening to my Genesis tapes, and he made the comment that I had started Genesis, and I'd given a whole Uh, message—that was when I was at Preston City Bible Church—on the documentary hypothesis. And um, uh, Ed Hindson commented, why would you do that in a sermon? And Tommy said, if the pastor doesn't do it, where are the people in the church going to learn how to answer those things? And Ed, who's, at the time, was uh, uh, Jerry Falwell's assistant, assistant chaplain, Ed's got his PhD. I respect Ed in many ways. Ed just kind of had a blank look and so he said, well, I guess you're right. So this may go over some people's heads, but there are people who listen who need this information. So we looked at Jericho last time. We looked at this map. This will orient us. This is from Logos Bible Software. I pointed this out the last time and it's actually uh, erroneous. I did email them about the correction. They said this was from an older version of Lagos. It won't be fixed, but they will make sure that it's correct in upcoming map versions. They located I South, this is really Etel, and Kerbet uh, Makater North. Those locations, actually, this green dot here shouldn't even be seen. Uh, Here, it's more Uh, located over here. So they just got the locations wrong. But it gives us a general idea. North of the Dead Sea, the Israelites came across from uh, Shittim, which means acacia wood, and they crossed over. Uh, At Gilgal, they had a covenant renewal ceremony. This is where they were sanctified, Remember, I'm saying that the main idea in Jericho is this idea of sanctification, positional as well as experiential. This is the positional sanctification of the nation, because the generation of men that were born and who grew up during the uh, wilderness wanderings were not uh, were not made sons of the covenant. They had not been bar mitzvahed. They did not, or they had not been uh, circumcised, so they couldn't be. Uh, true heirs of the covenant, so they had a had a, a bris, a mass bris ceremony. Uh, bris is a. It's interesting if you study Yiddish. What happens is the final T in Hebrew shifts to an S in Yiddish, so that the word Shabbat. If any of you who've seen uh, Fitter on the Roof have have heard this, Shabbat is ends with a T but in yiddish it ends with an s and so you will hear uh, those who come from eastern europe say good Shabbath." okay so you hear the, hear that difference so if berit or brit is the hebrew word for covenant then change that final t to an s and you have a Brith. and a bris is the ceremony where the male child is taken and and uh, circumcised on the eighth day and that is his identification with the covenant of Abraham so you had all these men who are not identified with the covenant of Abraham because they hadn't been circumcised and they have to be circumcised that is equivalent to uh, the positional sanctification uh, of the nation then they had their first battle at Jericho and we went through this last time talking about the archaeological issues there and I'm just going to remind you in this one slide I, and I've updated it since last time. That you have these three periods of time that are talked about in archaeology. What they refer to as early bronze, and this is subdivided into early bronze one and two, etc. This is from roughly 3,000 to 1,900 BC. That's according to standard uh, standard uh, chronologies. I would think that the uh, flood is somewhere around 2,800 or 2,900. Uh, BC, so that I wouldn't go back as far as 3000. This basically covers the period from Noah getting off of the ark up through the call of Abraham. The middle bronze period is the period 1900 BC to 1550. That covers most of the period of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then you have the late bronze period, which is 1550 to 1200. That's the period we're talking about. Uh, late bronze one, Is dated from 1550 to 1400. That includes the Exodus date, 1447, and the conquest date 40 years later after 40 years in the wilderness in 1407. So when you hear the term late bronze, that's what we're talking about. Now, each of these periods have distinctive pottery. They have distinct ways in which they built walls, in which they built cities. So when archaeologists go back, they can identify these things. And we talked about this one uh, archaeologist who was at the forefront of, of uh, the excavations at, at Jericho, John Garstang, excavated there in 1928 and again in 1930, and he wrote the definitive work on Bronze Age pottery. Now that's important because this is at the core of this debate over the location of I. He's the guy who dated the pottery. They still use his book, uh, and and this one traditional location for I was uh, he also excavated and identified it. The, the 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 that it was inhabited during the time of the. Uh, of the exodus and the conquest, and that it, the people suddenly disappeared, according to Garstang in fourteen hundred which is when that con- about the time that conquest period ends, so he says it's approximately that time, and so uh, he also did the work at Jericho, but later archaeologists came along and and they they basically well came along came up with other uh, some other I- ideas so this is Garstang. He's instrumental at Jericho and at I and at Bethel. So we looked at the evidence there from from Jericho. And here's Bryant Wood. He's another important name for us to understand. He's a good guy. He's not related to Andy Woods. Somebody mentioned that. Um, No, he's not related to Andy Woods. No, his last name doesn't end with an S. Uh, He is uh, very solid. He's the guy who did the groundbreaking work on Jericho. But I would disagree or question based on what I've been studying, what others have taught me, uh, his identification of the location of I. and But his views become very popular. Now, many of you in the congregation, one, one day last year, uh, in I think it was in about November or December, we went to a series of lectures over at Houston Baptist University. Uh, they have an incredible library over there called, that's uh, uh, not library, but incredible museum over there, the Museum of the Bible. And they brought in a team of archaeologists, Bryant Wood, who I just mentioned was one of the speakers, uh, Eugene uh, Merrill, who was one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, was another one of the professors. Uh, they brought in a couple of others. The guy who's taking Bryant Wood's place—he's had some health problems—taking uh, his place as the as the head of the dig. And uh, they gave us you know their argument, and what generated that was the previous year they had discovered an Egyptian scarab in this place called uh, Kerbet el-Makater, and what that showed. See, all it is is you've just found this scarab, but the scarab is dated to the 18th dynasty in Egypt, and what it showed was that there was somebody who had some sort of connection with the 18th dynasty in Egypt who had been in this, what some, many people had thought was just a very minor, minor place, and it might have been, but it showed that it was occupied during this same time period as the Exodus. Now, that's important. But on the basis of that, and some other evidence that I'll look at and show you in just a minute, um, people from Bible and Spade, the Associates for Biblical Research, have concluded that uh, Kerbet Makater is the location of biblical eye. And because of some of the, the way liberal theologians have treated Etel, there have been a, a huge number of evangelicals who have been swayed to this view. Now, I'm going to show you some reasons against that, but before we get into the archaeology, I want to go back to why we're talking about I uh, in terms of sanctification and in terms of, of of holy war. Now, when we look at Joshua's uh, Joshua seven, <clears throat> let's just back up a minute. We look at Joshua's uh, Joshua chapter six and describes the. Uh, what was to take place at, at Jericho. Uh, Joshua six seventeen says, "...the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction." That's the word harem. "...and all who are in it and all are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent." And you, by all means, abstain from the harem things, the banned things, the the accursed. It's translated accursed, but it means everything. Everything there, all, all everything valuable, everything not valuable, everything was to be destroyed. So the command is, you abstain from the harem things, lest you become accursed uh, when you take of the accursed things. Uh, that's harem all the way through there, and when the and. Um, And if you take anything, it would make the camp of Israel a curse. It would bring judgment on on Israel and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They're set aside. Chadash. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the people priests blew the trumpets. And when they heard the sounds of the trumpet, the people shouted. The wall fell down flat. We covered all of that last time. So something happens, though. They burned the city, Verse 24. They burned the city and all that was in it with fire, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Uh, Joshua followed up on the promise to Rahab and her family, and she survived, and then charged them at that time, cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds the city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with with his youngest he shall set up its gates. And that curse was fulfilled in 1 Kings 16.34 when... uh, um, a man rebuilt the city. His when he started, his uh, youngest son di- or his oldest son died, and when he um, his oldest son died, and when he uh, finished, his youngest son died. Then something happens. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the harem things. They violate the mandate. For Achan, the son of Carmi, one person does this. This is a picture of of a corporate impact of sin. We often think, "Well, sin just affects me," but but sin can impact your family. They are cursed by association. Sin can impact uh, more than your family. They can impact, uh, and if you if you're in a leadership position, uh, your sin can impact a whole culture. So sin isn't just a private thing between you and God. It is in terms of your spiritual life, but the consequences can impact a huge number of people. So Achan commits a sin. He stole from the accursed things, the harem things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. What that means, that's an idiom, and it means God is going to harshly judge them. We would say, it's using an idiom also, that God threw the book at them. Now, verse 2, we read, Joshua sent men from Jericho to I. Verse 1 basically tells us what the real issues are here. It's not military technology. It's not military skill. It is uh, not leadership. It is a sin problem. And Joshua sent men, uh, but Joshua doesn't know this. This is secret. Nobody knows that Achan has stolen these uh, uh, harem things. These things were to be devoted or set aside to God. And so they're hidden. And so Joshua goes on as if everything is, is just fine. And he said, now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Beth-El and spoke to them saying, go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out I. Now, one of the interesting things you have in scripture is these kinds of geographical details are are pretty specific. And this is to enable people to go back and say, this is exactly where this happened. And to understand that the Bible isn't talking in generalities, but that this is important for some reason to be able to identify this particular place and location. So what we have here is the identification of Jericho, which we talked about earlier, and I, and it's beside this place called Beth-Avon. Now Beth Aven is only mentioned a couple of times in the old testament it 's a very small location we 'll come back to mentioning that a little later on, but it tells us that I was beside or very close to Beth Aven and it 's on the east side of Bethel. So we have the, the geography is laid out here, and uh, so the men go up and spy it out Now, what is significant about this geographically? This is really interesting how this ties together. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Okay, we're going to go back to Genesis 12. And God has given, uh, God's given Abraham his marching orders. And he is to leave Ur of the Chaldees. And he's supposed to go to the land that God has promised him. And he goes there. And then uh, as he goes into the land, he travels from the north to the south. And he's going to come into the land, and he comes to Shechem, or Shechem, which is located right in the middle of modern-day Nablus, which is by ancient Samaria. And he comes to Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and then we're reminded, and the Canaanites are still in the land. Then verse 7, The Lord appeared to Avram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And so there at Shem, he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then we're told that what he typically did here was he would uh, make proclamation in the name of the Lord, which is mentioned in the next verse. And we're told in verse 8, he says, he moved from there to the mountain e- or the hill east of Bethel. Anybody, have we seen east of Bethel lately? Yeah, we have. We just saw it in reference to I. I is east of Bethel, but is a little further east than this hill. He moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. So he's in the middle between Bethel and I, And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. Now, this phrase has always kind of bothered me. It's idiomatic. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? We think that that sounds like prayer. It's not prayer. This is an idiom for making proclamation in the name of the Lord. He's builds he builds a huge altar there and he's in the midst of these Canaanite idolaters which is just made a, that point was just made and he is proclaiming the greatness of God. He is as it were taking uh control of the land. He builds an altar in Shechem. He moves a day's uh Travel south of there to Bethel. He's going to build an altar there. He's going to do this all the way down to Hebron, down the the, the spine of, of of Israel, down the down the mountains. Now, here's what this looks like. This is a blow up here of the of the modern area. This is the modern Arab uh, village of Betin. Betin is the Arab equivalent of Bethel. What does Bethel mean? Bethel means the house of God. The Canaanite name was Luz. And this is Betin, and it's, it's a rather large area, and it extends down pretty far south down to this area. This is Etel here. I've put a put a line due so you'd have a due east west axis here. And we see that there is this, this area over here is uh where. Uh, William Foxwell Albright, in the late 20s, excavated uh, Bethel. Now, this was all agricultural area, so when they got done, they had to fill it all back in again. But uh, when we were there uh, back in early May, Joel had with him... Albright's original sketches of the area, and we could see these these areas don't change much over the years. The, the the old houses and barns and everything that were there in 1928 are still there, and you can mark them, and then you can go out into the pasture, and you can see the area. It's all uh, olive trees now, uh, but you can see this area that was excavated by, by Albright. And if you turn around from that area and you look back due east, you're going to be on a direct axis with I. But this claim that Kerbet el-Makater is I is a little off because it's south of that axis. That's just one point I'm going to make here. So when we, if we're standing, if we go to Bethel, and just east, just west of there, it's marked by a mosque and a minaret. You go to, see this road right here, this long north-south road? That's the highway we're going to see in the next picture. And if you go to just about uh, less than 100 yards to the west, there's the remains of a 3rd century Byzantine church that was referenced by Eusebius uh, in a commentary uh, in the in the 4th century where he says that this this church was built on the traditional site of where Abraham had built his altar. Something else happened in that site. If you're with me in Genesis 12, turn to Genesis chapter uh, chapter 30, 35, Genesis 35. This is describing Jacob's return to Bethel. He had gone off to his cousin Laban's up north. Now he's coming back with his wife Rachel and Leah and with the uh, two concubines and his sons. And on his way back, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God. So he goes to Bethel, and he builds an altar at the same place his grandfather built that altar and made proclamation to God. So this was a known site in the ancient world, and it was was marked, "'Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you, and you fled from the face of Esau your brother.'" So he's been at the same place already. And he takes his family with him, and there God renews the covenant with him. Verse 6, so Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, the God of Bethel. That's preserved in the Arabic term, our name now, which is Beitin, Because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. And then in the rest of the chapter it talks about God renewing renewing the covenant. So this picture here is a picture looking due east from this the remains of this church, this Byzantine church, and you're looking due east. Now the, here's the highway I pointed out on the map, and here's this ridgeline over here, and you see these houses. In a little bit, we're going to look at those houses from the other side of the hill because what's on the direct east of here on the other side of that hill is Tell, which is the traditional site for I. Now, Kerbet al-Makater is off to the right. Uh, It's it's down a ways. That just locates us historically. You can go to these places. It's phenomenal to be standing there and know that 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 that, what four thousand years ago? Three yeah, four thousand years ago. Abraham and Sarah camped there and built an altar to the Lord, and you're you're probably within fifty feet of where they where they were. So Joshua seven three. They returned to uh, this is uh, as uh, back, back to Joshua. This is as they're setting up for battle, and. Um, As they come to Joshua for their marching orders, he's uh, sent the spies into Ai, and they come back to Joshua and they said to him, "Don't let all the people go up." In other words, it's not—it's we don't need the whole army. We just need a part of it. Uh, We can do it with two or three thousand men uh, who go up and attack Ai. Uh, don't weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about, thou- about 3,000 men went up from there with the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. In other words, they are getting stomped by the men of Ai. Verse 5, and the men of Ai struck down 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them down on the descent. Now, what happens is God is bringing judgment on Israel because of the sin of Achan. And I don't have all these, didn't put all these verses in the slides, but Joshua, Joshua kind of has a little bit of a meltdown. He's lost 36 men. And his response is, he tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua cries out, alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us in the hand? I mean, he's given up. He's got quitter all over him. They won Josh Jericho, but now they've lost 36 men and he's ready to, to give it up. And God, you just brought us over here to destroy us what shall I say in verse 8 when Israel turns its back before its enemies? And then the Lord speaks to him in verse 10 and says, basically, get up. Why are you lying in your face in the dust? And this is what God says. He says, Israel has sinned, and they've transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken some of the accursed things. That's the harem things. Notice how many times this word appears. They have taken, you can't translate it holy war. They have taken the holy war things. It doesn't make sense. They've taken the, the things that have been banned, the banned things, and have, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Notice the whole nation is suffering because of the sin of one person. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they had become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore. Seems kind of harsh. But see, this is what we're seeing in Harem warfare: is that this is all about God and His righteousness, and it's not about man. It's not about who's about what mankind is doing. It's about God's justice and righteousness. And so God is saying, uh, if you don't follow my rulebook specifically, then. I'm not going to give you any more victory because this isn't about just giving you land. It's about defending the integrity of God. So he tells them then in verse 13, get up, sanctify the people. What's the solution? It's not experience, It's not positional sanctification. That occurred at Gilgal when all of the men from the uh, wilderness wanderings had to be circumcised that now they have to be experientially circumcised. When you're teaching in prep school, you're teaching kids, if you want a good story from the Old Testament that talks about confession and turning back to God from disobedience to obedience, this is the example to use. There has to be experiential sanctification. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because the Lord, thus says the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you wait, take away the cursed thing uh, among you. And so they're now outside of this area. These are the two sites. They're somewhere out out here, past this Arab village of Dir Deban, and they have to... Go through this exercise of cleansing the nation from sin. Here's another map. Give you another. Little, this is a little darker, but it gives you the uh, the relationship here. Here's Betin. This location here, Burj Betin, is the location of that fourth century Byzantine uh, church that I, I mentioned earlier. That's called Burj Betin, and it is just as you can see, it's due west of Etel. And then south of that line is this this little star here, which is Kerbet El El So before we get continue the story of the consecration, let's go back to archaeology a minute. The city of I. This is what Garstang wrote. The city of I and the camp enclosure of Hatsor were apparently abandoned from that time the late 15th century, that's 1400, um, while Jericho was not rebuilt for some centuries. The point that he made in f- what he discovered is that, and this is one of the, I spent most of the day today reading a PhD dissertation that was arguing for Kribet Makater. And I've read numerous articles in the last couple of weeks and over the last several years. And when I was with Joel, Joel made two, really important contributions to my understanding of, of this whole issue. Number one is that that the, the claim that Kerbet El Makadr is the correct location for I is built on the assumption that um, that etel was not occupied from about fifteen fifty BC until about twelve hundred BC. Now what do they base that on? They base that on the pottery. In fact, the individual who wrote this Ph.D. dissertation dismisses the pottery issue in one sentence by saying it's just been under debate for the last 30 years. And that was it. But see, who wrote the book on pottery? Garstang. Garstang is the one who excavates at Tell, and he says there's evidence of middle bronze pottery all through... Uh, the ruins. It's in the wall. It's used to fill in gaps in the walls, and so it's obvious that Etel was that there was occupation there until approximately fourteen hundred. That's when the that's when the conquest ended. So that's what Garstang is saying. Now here's another visual showing this east-west axis. Here's Betin, and here's Etel, and here's Macadar over here. Now according to the text. You can't see Beitin from Etel, but you have a little better visual of it from over here at Makater. But here you have a ridge line right here, and this is where, in Chapter 8, this is where Joshua sets up uh, part of the ambush is on this this ridge line. Those houses I pointed out earlier are on the top of that ridge line right here. We were over here looking this way and looking at that other side of that ridge, and this is what you see looking back towards Beitin and this is another shot. This is standing at, uh, Kerbit looking at the, uh, uh, tell. You can't even see it from Kerbit Makater. This is Kerbit is possibly Beth Avon. Okay. Now there you have, uh, Dr. Ice in the foreground and Joel up here. And we're walking this area where Kerbit Makater is. Now, what's the other line of evidence? Um, the, Another line of evidence, and I didn't put the slide in here, but another line of evidence that, that negates the Kermit-McCotter thing is that the claim is that this was a, a fortification and that they've discovered, they've discovered a gate and they've discovered the wall. The problem is that experts from, th- from three different background people who had no idea what they were looking at, they weren't told what they were looking at, one was from the Israel Archaeological um, Authority, Antiquities Authority. Another was uh, a professor who uh, of archaeology in Israel, a- and a third was another individual that Joel brought out there. That, and he asked him, "Please identify. This is this is th- what is this?" And what he was showing them was this uh, gate that that Bryant Wood said was a was the. Uh, was the gate from this time period showing the, the wall because biblical text says there's a gate and a wall. And so he was identifying that as this middle bronze gate. Well, all three of these individuals came out there and almost immediately when they looked at the, this this evidence on the ground, they said, this is a, this is a Byzantine wine press. All three of them identified as Byzantine wine press. Well, Byzantine wine press is like fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh century AD, and that's a lot newer than something that is fourteen hundred BC. Okay, so that's that's a bit of a problem. Uh, this is another. This is at Tell itself. This, it's it's very large. It's built on this tell, and and it's it's quite a, a large site and quite extensive. Uh, we know that it was inhabited from um, probably the t- not long after the flood until about 2400 B.C., and it covers an area of about 27 acres. Now, that fits because uh, Etel is, is uh, also identified as an, as an area that's just a little bit larger than uh, one of the major cities, which was Gibeon. And that there was an early bronze temple that was built on top of the tell. But another part of the evidence is these walls. And these walls fit middle bronze fortifications, or excuse me, late bronze fortifications. They're smaller stones, uh, and you can see that a little bit. You have smaller stones, and then the gaps are filled in with even smaller stones. And you see the same thing with this wall. Uh, so this would have been one of the major walls uh, around at Tel, so this sub- helps us substantiate this. Also, the geography fits uh, as it's been identified, which is one reason it's identified that way uh, for uh, a very long time. So, all of that sub- I, I believe helps us to understand this. Now, here's a shot, a little bit out of order. This was um, I talked earlier about Bethel and Albright. And Albright uh, had to excavate it, and then they had to cover it over and now it's an uh an olive uh olive grove olive tree grove, and that's where we are here's jo- the back of Joel talking to the arab owner and uh we were over at his house earlier and then this is um this is the apse of that Byzantine church that was uh located where abraham had uh had built his altar. So, let's see what happens. So, in terms of consecration, see, this kind of war can only take place under God's direction and according to God's rules. It is not going to be done on man's, man's way, on, on man's rules. That's the point I'm trying to get. How do we distinguish warfare from these other kinds of so-called holy wars? And the reason is, is because they're designed to, to validate and and to uh, express the righteousness of God. They're done God's way. So man can't go out there with sin in the camp. So the Lord says to Joshua after, after this, and he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get to sanctify the people in verse 13 and tell them to sanctify themselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there's an accursed thing in your midst. So now the next morning, after they've sanctified themselves spiritually, they're prepared, all the tribes come out, and they're going to move through the tribes by lot. And they, uh, verse 15, he says, it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire. He's going to be burned at the stake, and all of his family is going to be killed, and all of his possessions are going to be killed. Because God took this seriously. It, 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 holy war isn't just, I'm on some kind of crusade and I'm going to kill people who don't agree with God. I'm a harem warfare as it's defined in scriptures. Much more significant than that. So, verse 16 Joshua rose early in the morning, brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. This would be taken by Lot. And then verse 17, he brought the clan of Judah, took the family of the Tsarites, and brought the family of the Tsarites, man by man. And Zabdi, one of the clan, uh, I mean, one of the families in the clan, was taken. And then as he took that uh, family through, and house by household, Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, is identified. And then Joshua says to him in verse 19, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him. So you've got to confess sin and make confession to him and tell me now what you've done. Don't hide it from me. And Achan said, I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel. Even though it impacted the whole nation, the sin is always against God. Remember this, personal sin is a violation of whose standard not your husbands, not your wives, not your friends, not the nations. It's a violation of God's standard. So he sinned against the Lord God. David said the same thing when he confessed his sin with, of adultery with Bathsheba and conspiracy to murder her husband Uriah the Hittite. He said, against you and you alone have I sinned, O Lord. So uh, Achan says, I've sinned against the Lord. This is what I've done. And then he explains what he's done. We'll skip down Verse 24, then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan and the silver and the gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua indicts him. He says, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. What does that tell you? That the writer is writing this not long, long a certain amount of time afterwards, because it's still there to this day. But it's 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 You can go there. It's historical. It's happens in space time history. It's not something somebody made up. You can go there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of His anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Accor to this day. And then chapter eight talks about their victory. They can't have victory until they deal with sin. And so this is. Uh, what the Lord says after that, don't be afraid nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you. Arise, go up to Ai, and see, I've given into your hand, the King of Ai, his people, his city and his land. And all of this is then described. Verse nine says, Joshua, therefore sent them out and they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai on the West side of Ai. That was that Ridge. I pointed out where those houses are. See, you can't really grasp the text if you don't grasp the geography because this happened in a real place. And God's not just giving you spiritual principles. He's talking about things that happen in real places, and we learn from that, but you can't separate the doctrine from the location. So we go through this, describes the ambush and how they're destroyed and how they destroy all of the people of Ai. What's the point in all of this? As we're looking at understanding Kherom, we realize it's all about the integrity of God. It's all about his righteousness and his justice. And he has graciously given the Canaanites enough rope to hang themselves. And now the hangman, are the Israelites that are coming into the Promised Land after over 400 years. So it's not something that is arbitrary. It's not something that's done quickly. It's done out of grace. People are given an extension and an extension upon an extension. But God's justice must prevail. His integrity must prevail. And it's only this harem is only directed to those who are specifically uh, preventing the Israelites from fulfilling God's plan for for uh, the nation, and that's why the Amalekites will be, uh, God will call for them to be annihilated, is because they are seeking to destroy Israel, and they sort of become a prototype for all anti Semites down through the centuries. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things and be reminded of how. Important it is to understand your word in terms of its original context and in terms of the geography and the history of the land, that we understand that these are real things. These are genuine circumstances and situations that reflect your integrity, your righteousness, and your justice, and that these are not just stories. These are not just um, motivational uh, illustrations, but these are designed to teach real-time events that... that teach us and communicate to us the importance uh, of walking with you, walking in fellowship, dealing with the sin in our life, and honoring and glorifying you according to your word. And only then can we have real victory in the uh, spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. And we pray that we would be challenged by these things in Christ's name. Amen.